welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. Welcome, Teshni Govinda. Thank back, you, Andrew. Thank you very much. Back with us again. We appreciate you coming back for another another session to educate us on things we don't know anything about. <laughs> it's a privilege to be here. So today, today we're going to talk a little bit about neonatal vomiting. Um, firstly, can you maybe just help us define what a neonate is? So a neonate is um, defined as a baby, a newborn baby, in the first 28 days of life. And part of the definition of a neonate goes around that it's a very critical period of life in terms of acclimatizing and adjusting to the extrauterine environment, it's a period of bonding with the parents, and it's, it's a great period of adjustment, growth, and development for a baby. Do you think that prematurity has any impact on what we define as a neonate? I actually tried to look this up, and there's no clear definition of whether preterm or premature neonate um, is corrected age, and then 28 days, I'm not too sure. I think that blurs the lines a bit. I haven't been able to find an answer. Yeah, and no, also I was thinking about it. No, I think it compounds things a little bit. Obviously, we always think about neonates as the first 28 days of life, but obviously if you're premature, you know, potentially that time period expands quite a bit. Absolutely. And, you know, whether it's, yeah, as you say, up until, you know, term plus four weeks or who knows, it's difficult to say, but I think we should just remember that maybe the margin is not quite as clear as what we think it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, how common is vomiting in newborns? Vomiting is actually very common in newborns. And um, I think when we're discussing vomiting, the important thing is the definition of what vomiting actually is. And from what I understand, vomiting is a centrally or neurologically mediated event that involves forceful expulsion of gastric contents, um, and it's an active process. So it's quite common in most neonates, And um, with feeding adjustment or feeding volume issues, most of them do vomit, and they vomit quite commonly. However, it's not always sinister. Mm. Yeah, I remember we spoke a little little bit about it when we spoke about gastroesophageal reflux disease and obviously why these kids vomit more frequently. Um, What's the difference between a vomit and a posset? So a posset is a passive um, event, it's a regurgitation of feed. It's usually curdled milk from the stomach. And it may be accompanied by um, a gush of air, a burp. The medical term is eructation. Um, and it's um, as a result of overfeeding. So the neonatal stomach is very small. And in a preterm or premature baby, that volume is even less. And also because they have very poorly developed anti-reflux mechanisms. Um, food often doesn't stay in the abdomen. Um, and will just passively overflow. Cool. So before this, you're telling me that a posset is something else as well. In my research, it's actually a lemon curd custard dessert. Um, I think we're a research and it will now change the approach to the posset. So you've got a young baby, so is that what a posset looks like? It absolutely does not. So if vomiting is so common and so frequent, when do we start to worry that this is something pathological or something abnormal? So I think the first thing in the neonatal period is we have to look at the quality of the vomiting. So if there's blood in the vomiting, I would think that's a worry. And very early on in life, uh, blood in the vomitus could be from swallowed maternal blood. 
and we can differentiate that with the app test. Um, and if that continues over a long period of time and there's Molina accompanied with it, then that's obviously something that is worrisome and should be investigated. Um, and the other thing that could be a cause of bloodstain vomiting would be ulceration, esophagitis, gastritis, that kind of thing. So that's one reason to worry about vomiting. The next reason is if it's projectile. I think um, faucets can be projectile with that gush of air. Parents do worry that is my kid having projectile vomiting, so that can be a concern. But real projectile vomiting is accompanied by a constellation of other clinical symptoms that we need to put together. And then, of course, bile stain vomiting is, is a real concern. Um, other things where kids are vomiting, it's not bile stained or blood stained, um, but if it's too often and they are failing to thrive or having apneic episodes or losing weight, um, I would worry about vomiting in those children. All right. So, I mean, you've mentioned some of the reasons why kids vomit, but what are some of the common conditions that we see in the neonatal period that are associated with vomiting? I think most commonly would be gastroesophageal reflux disease. Um, and then very rarely, I suppose, hypertrophic pyloric stenosis can cause vomiting. Babies that have um, inguinal hernias that may uh, incarcerate and spontaneously reduce can have vomiting. Uh, congenital diaphragmatic hernias and eventration. And then obviously in the very neonatal, the early period of life, duodenal stenosis and atresias anywhere along the bowel, even including anorectal malformation. So basically any causes of established bowel obstruction can give you vomiting that is a cause for concern. Can I ask you, can you just tell us a little bit more about bowel stain vomiting? As a surgeon, I think we are trained to panic if we see green. I always think like we must really go hulk when we see bile stain vomiting in a <laughs> child <laughs> because it's a problem and it can be catastrophic if we miss it. Um, and the clinical history, I think, is paramount in whether or not you worry and how, how much um, you actually put into investigating these children. And if you get a history of a child who has been feeding normally and acutely has a bile stain vomit, that is definitely a cause for concern. I mean, you allude to the diagnosis, but what, what, do you, what part of the diagnosis are you worried about? So these babies can have malrotation, and malrotation can present with an acute volvulus. And if a volvulus is not detected and treated in, in, in time, you're obviously going to lose the entire midgut. Um, and that's one scenario, but losing the midgut and then, or having partial recovery of it and having intestinal failure is also quite a catastrophic result to have. What, what exactly is a malrotation? So a malrotation is, actually I think the term malrotation in pediatric surgery is not used as often anymore in the textbooks. And the constellation of symptoms is described as intestinal rotational abnormalities. And that is because it presents as a spectrum of problems. And it is disorders of intestinal fixation and of rotation. And because the embryological events do not occur exactly the same way in every single patient, they can present very differently. So, but what, I mean, what's the problem with having a malrotation? I mean, so your gut is not orientated the same as everybody else. I mean, so what, what, what difference does it make? Why do these kids give us problems? On one end of the spectrum, there can be a degree of malrotation that never presents in life, that people, you may maybe discovered at autopsy findings. 
But in the vast majority of people that have malrotation, or as far as we know, it causes obstruction to some degree or another. And the obstruction can be as a result of the lab spans that cross from the duodenum to the right side of the abdominal wall and obstruct the duodenum, or of course from the volvulus. But depending on the spectrum, whether it's a reverse rotation or um, just the abnormal fixation, you could get anything from a cecal volvulus to internal hernias, mesocolic hernias, and they can cause bowel obstruction in various degrees and forms. Why are these kids more prone to getting a volvulus than the general population? The, the mesenteric axis is actually very, very narrow. And although the cause of the actual or the precipitating event for the volvulus hasn't quite been um, elucidated, it's that twist on the axis of the mesenteric base that causes the volvulus and the bowel obstruction. Okay. So when do these kids typically present to us? I mean, it obviously sounds like it's quite a risky thing to have. Um, you know, when do we often see these children? So uh, the numbers are 40, 50, and 75. So 40% in the first week of life, 50% in the first month of life, and up to 75% in the first year of life. And they can present very differently. Um, in the early neonatal period, uh, okay, let's take the worst case scenario. So if a child presents acutely with the volvulus, an ischemic bowel, they may have an acute abdomen, which is distended, tense, tender, with obviously the bile stain vomiting, a baby that's very uncomfortable and physiologically with a metabolic acidosis. If they are, um, sort of have a volvulus that is evolving and devolving, perhaps these babies may have crampy abdominal pain, discomfort, feeding intolerance, and PR bleeding when ischemia starts to set in um, if it's not established uh, strangulated bowel yet. And if it's a later presentation, they could have chylosocieties, uh, chronic abdominal pain, chronic vomiting, even diarrhea. They could have hematemesis and weight loss. And of course, they could be completely asymptomatic. Mm. So I mean, what's your approach to investigating or treating a patient that presents with acute bowel stain vomiting? I think that for the pediatric surgeon or any clinician seeing a child, that the index of suspicion has to be present. So if you've got this at the back of your mind, you won't necessarily ever miss the diagnosis. So it is a clinical diagnosis to make. And once you've made that diagnosis clinically, I think the first step in your investigation would be a resuscitative measure um, in terms of putting in a nasogastric tube, decompressing the abdomen, minimizing the risk for aspiration, ensuring that um, IV access is gained early, before septic shock sets in or any kind of shock, and then stabilizing your child. Um, then you'd need to do a plain abdominal x-ray. And the radiological signs can often be subtle, but again, if you high, have a high index of suspicion, you will pick it up. So what radiological signs do you see on a plain abdominal x-ray that make you suspicious? So you might see a very distended stomach. Um, if obviously you've put in the nasogastric tube and aspirated air decompressed, you might not see the sign. But usually a big stomach with a very little um, distal bowel gas or um, loops distally that are not very filled with gas definitely is a worrying sign for malrotation. You may see that the, the gas pattern distally is unilateral, so either centered to the left or the right, 
or maybe even to the middle of the abdomen, surrounded by what you'd interpret as fluid in the abdomen. Um, you may see a very dilated duodenum, um, suggesting that there's a, a duodenal obstruction. And if you've got a, a volvulus, you may see nothing. You may see a complete paucity of gas um, in the abdomen, and you won't see any gas shadowing in the bowel. So things to definitely be worried about. So if you're suspicious, I mean, how do you make the diagnosis? What's your next step? So in our setting, our next step, the next step would be, and this is critical, in a stable baby that does not have an acute abdomen, I'd go down to the radiological suite and request an urgent contrast meal and follow-through. And the radiologist would perform this test, looking for the anatomical configuration of the duodenal sea loop, and a follow-through to see if they can see a bird beaking or corkscrewing to indicate that the bowel has twisted and formed a volvulus. If the child is not stable, I would not waste time doing this investigation. I would go straight to theatre and do an exploratory laparotomy and proceed from there. Okay. And I mean, sometimes these contrast studies are not easy to interpret. Absolutely. Uh, what's your recommendation if you're not 100% sure on the contrast study, but you are suspicious for a malrotation with or without a volvulus? Um, your other option is to do a laparoscopic examination of the abdomen. It depends on what facility you have. Um, other adjunctive tests that are available, you could do an ultrasound to have a look and see the relationship of the superior mesenteric artery and vein and the Doppler flow in those vessels. And what you, what this radiologist or ultrasonographer should see is a whirlpool sign um, where the axis is inverted of the vein and the artery. Um, however, that may not be available depending on the ex expertise of your team. Sometimes the safest thing to actually do is go to theatre and explore that abdomen. Okay, so the best is just to, if you're suspicious, just to actually pop your eyes on the problem and actually have a look and confirm or deny it one way or another. Absolutely. Okay. So now when you've decided to go to theatre, you obviously mentioned that resuscitation is important um, but experience in terms of getting to theatre is also important. What do you do when you get to theatre? What are your operative steps? So the operative steps were dis described by LAD um, and the six steps to the LAD's procedure are number one, to turn back the hands of time and you detort the volvulus counterclockwise. The second thing to do is to ensure duodenal patency. So apart from um, You'd obviously divide your lad's bands, um, the bands crossing the duodenum into the right side of the abdominal wall, and then you would feed a large tube, appropriate size for the patient, from the mouth into the stomach and feed that into the duodenum. You could use a Foley's catheter, and you would inflate the bulb and pull that tube back. What you want to exclude is a windsock deformity in the duodenum. Sometimes in a neonate who hasn't fed, Caliber changes are difficult to appreciate. The duodenum is also in a very fixed position, and until, unless you mobilize it and inspect it very carefully, you may not see that very thin outline or double walling that you may sometimes appreciate um, in the duodenum. So you have to make sure you exclude a duodenal stenosis or intraluminal obstruction. Um, then you want to widen the mesenteric base. So you need to do this very carefully because the vessels in the, in the, in the mesentery are quite thin, but you want to widen that base, dividing carefully all the adhesions above it. Um, we do an appendectomy 
and then place all the small bowel on the right side of the abdomen. So you want a nice straight duodenum lying in the right pericolic gutter and you place the cecum in the left side of the abdomen. And that's your lab's procedure. All right. So you mentioned at least one controversial thing. Yes. So I'm curious about the appendicectomy. Uh, what's the point of doing the appendicectomy in these kids? The appendicectomy is um, a prophylactic procedure in case the child develops appendicitis later on in life that it would present somewhat strangely and unconventionally. I, I guess that it depends, this has to be patient-specific. Like Sometimes we, or most of the time, we need to individualize treatment. And if you have parents that are very educated about the procedure, you think you could trust with the operation notes and be well aware of taking care of this child if they were sick in the future, you could leave the appendix in and say to them, well, be aware if this child does have abdominal pain, we need to be very aware that the appendix is not in the correct place. However, unfortunately, in our environment, transport to hospitals is often really difficult for lots of people living in rural areas, and the education level is not where people will understand the concept of leaving the appendix in. And so you want to subject these kids to the mobility of having a perforated appendix um, in a resource-constrained environment. So we do an appendicectomy in those situations. Okay, I understand your reasons for doing the appendicectomy. Are there any group of patients in which you would specifically not do an appendix or an appendicectomy? So definitely in a patient who has, um, for example, one kidney or a renal abnormality or perhaps inorectal malformations um, where the appendix can be used in future for a Malone or an ACE procedure, or maybe needed for a conduit for a metrophenol, I would definitely leave the appendix in. Are there any kids in which we would expect a malrotation to be a normal phenomenon? So, um, a malrotation can be um, a normal phenomenon in patients with congenital diaphragmatic hernias and all the abdominal wall defects, so gastroschisis, umphalocils, um, will definitely have an element of malrotation because of the, the pathology that they have. And then those kids, do you go and hunt for malrotation issues and do a lads procedure on those patients? Um, I'd say absolutely not, because when we do the initial operation to correct the pathology, um, you hope that the adhesions that will be created or result in the initial surgery will fix the bowel so that such that a volvulus does not occur. All right, so you're saying the risk of volvulus in those kids is quite low because of their associated other condition? Yeah. Okay. Um, what's your take-home message? My take-home message would be um, something that we use as a mantra in our department, really. If you suspect a malrotation, pediatric surgeon and radiologist out of bed. And the second thing is, if you, so if you see a child with a bile stain vomiting, do not forget to think about this diagnosis. All right, so you're saying that although there's lots of relative emergencies in pediatric surgery, this is a real emergency. Absolute true emergency, where you have to crash the emergency list, really work against the clock to do everything you can um, to prevent the bile from becoming ischemic. Okay, so this and testicular torsion then? 
(laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Tish, for your insights. That's uh, a big help to us. Uh, We'll keep our our eyes peeled for bile stain vomiting. And we look forward to chatting to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together.